A word of warning. This podcast may contain themes that some listeners might find distressing. Not always, but sometimes. However, this podcast will definitely contain strong language. Therefore, if neither of these things sound appealing, it's probably not the podcast for you then, is it? Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Narcissist Ramblings podcast with me, the Narcissist Psychologist, where today I'm going to be talking about the cheery subject of the war on men. Um, I say cheery with a sense of irony because in looking at some of the information for this episode, I have come across quite a bit of intense information, some really intense statistics that if you're a woman, um, might be a bit heavy to hear. So if you are a woman listening to this to this episode and things become a bit heavy please do look after yourself and take a break if you need to uh, or just put this episode to rest um i guess this episode is more food for thought uh, for men anyway um men who might be listening um the reason i want to talk about this and the reason i want to uh, the reason i want men to pay attention is because there's like this growing narrative that exists online that and you know as the title of the podcast suggests uh, there's a war on men um it's a narrative that's long been held by what would be considered men's rights activists, a movement that is essentially that essentially exists in opposition to feminism. Um, MRAs, uh, or men's rights activists, uh, would argue that they are egalitarians, you know, seeking to ensure equality for all, specifically for men, but will do this by highlighting specific populations of men or areas of society uh, in which men experience hardships. So common themes that are often discussed by men's rights activists are that of unemployment, high suicide rates among men, boys falling behind in education, uh, men having to go to war, supposed lack of custody rights uh, for fathers and parental alienation, and the claim that men experience domestic abuse as frequently as women. Now, it's not the intent of this podcast episode to go through all the issues highlighted by MRAs and just to discuss them in detail. Um, there's like a lot of subtlety and nuance to these issues, uh, which are, you know, they're very real and do exist to some, to some extent. However, MRAs will often use these as examples to highlight how feminism, or I guess, you know, the pursuit of equal rights for marginalized groups in general, has left men um, the forgotten victims of society. So, Laura Bates discusses men's rights activists in a lot more detail in her book, Men Who Hate Women, which, you know, I'd highly suggest you read if any of this is of interest to you. Um, And so I won't go into all, you know, into detail about this right now. But I guess what I will say is that I feel like this war on men narrative is fed by MRA ideology and beliefs that society has gone too far with respect to feminism. Um, But in some way... I now feel that this war on men narrative is weaponizing masculinity as part of its repertoire too, um, by suggesting that uh, masculinity is in crisis. Um, and the more that this war on men narrative, you know, which has its roots in what's known as the manosphere, uh, Laura Bates talks about this in a book too, the more that this narrative is starting to spread, uh, the more it is starting to make its way into kind of like mainstream online arenas, uh, such as Instagram and Twitter. Which is, I guess, because I'm noticing it more and more in these online spaces, this is kind of like why I um, wanted to discuss this as part of this podcast episode. Now, the inspiration for this episode comes from an Instagram post that was shared um, on the account of La 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 Let Me Explain. Um, 
If you don't know who Lala Let Me Explain is, I would highly suggest that you follow her. Uh, she is a formal, former social worker, author, and I guess she's, I don't know, you know, like a dating advice guru. Um, her book is called Block, Delete, Move On. Um, but she's also a very, you know, straight-talking feminist voice who I've learned a lot from. Um, and a lot of her content is rooted in highlighting sexist and misogynistic behavior in the dating world, but also branches out into areas of uh, domestic and sexual violence, and also calling out general bullshit by men, <laughs> as is the case with the Instagram post in question. Um, I'm not going to disclose who the post is by um, in this episode, um, but I have selected some, I guess, choice passages uh, from the caption to focus on. Um, the Instagram post in question <laughs> has like a picture of the owner of the account, a man, looking at, a cam- at, looking at the camera, smiling quite genially with the title, The War on Men. Um, and the caption opens with these first few lines. There's a war going on at the moment that a small group of people can see, but the majority can't. Yet. It's a war on men designed to demonize, oppress, and make men weak. So I guess when I read this kind of stuff, I'm always curious as to who this war is being declared by. Like, who's declaring this war? You know, usually in a war, there's an aggressor and a victim, I suppose. Um, You know, a person or people... Uh, declared war upon. Now, I don't want to seem like I'm making this things a competition, but I guess it would be helpful to point out what a war, you know, that is acts of aggression and violence, declared on a specific gender would look like. And here, you know, um, I would like to declare that I've, you know, once more taken inspiration from the stories of Lola Let Me Explain. Um, I actually have very little of my own original ideas. And I suppose the reason why I'm taking inspiration from her um, is because because uh, she did something similar to what I'm about to do now. And in order to dis, you know, in order to do this discussion justice, um, it might be helpful to think about you know three particular wars against women that are currently being perpetrated in different parts of the world. Um, and I guess yeah, just a warning. This is where shit gets a bit heavy. Okay. So the first example of a war on women is that uh, earlier this year in America, a supposed first world or developed country, the American, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States unleashed what has been described as an unprecedented attack on women, girls and people of reproductive capacity. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, a law that had provided 50 years of established constitutional protection for abortion and has now made abortion illegal in America which in some states also includes abortions related to miscarriages and ectopic, and ectopic pregnancies. And if you think about it, 50 years is not all that long of a, for a law like this to have existed. People have grandparents older than this law. I mean, it's absolutely fucking bonkers if you think about it. Um, and what's even more bonkers is the fact that this law, a right for those who are able to give birth and to choose whether they give um, birth or not, you know, to have autonomy over their body has been taken away just like that. That actually blows my fucking mind, and I still can't fathom that in this day and age, a person's right to live their life how they choose has just been stripped away. It's just this fucking nuts. Um, so, you know, that's one of the first examples. So the second example is that in September of this year, in Iran, a 22-year-old woman named Masha Amini died while being detained in custody. Her crime... Um, was that in the capital city of Tehran, uh, Masha Amini was not wearing a hijab in accordance with the compulsory Islamic hijab laws. 
Um, turns out she was wearing a hijab, but she was wearing it loosely. And so she was arrested by the morality police, taken into custody, uh, where she later died, having allegedly been beaten in a police truck on her way to being detained. Um, I say allegedly, as Iranian authorities claim that no violence was used against uh, Marsha Amini, but rather that she collapsed from a heart attack. Um, you know, hopefully you know all about this and you've seen this in the news, um, although there has been some criticism that this has not necessarily received as much uh, media coverage um, as it should. Um, but her death has sparked uh, what's been described as unprecedented protests uh, in Iran, with women defying the government's laws and cutting their hair in solidarity, and joined by men who support these women and wish to change the laws that treat women of Iran as second-class citizens, um, alongside other grievances of how the Iranian government treats its citizens in general. Seemingly, though, these protests are nothing new. Uh, there were protests in the late 70s and 80s um, when the new form of government, uh, who took over in 1979, started making plans to restrict the rights and privileges of women, supposedly in line with the faith of uh, Islam. Um, the protests held then were for the same reasons they are today. But despite the protests at that time, new restrictions on women's clothes became law in 1983. And again, that's just under 40 years ago. Like, that's that's mad. Um, additionally, the death of Masha Amini is not the first time violence has been used against women uh, by the so-called morality police, not necessarily resulting in death in the way that Masha Amini was treated, um, although I could be wrong about that. Um, but it has been reported that women in Iran are continuously harassed by the morality police um, and if having been found to contravene these uh, hijab laws are made to attend what's called educational classes um, and I guess, you know, who knows what uh, these educational classes look like. Um, and this is all apparently, you know, quite a common occurrence. And so then thirdly, uh, in South Africa, there has... Uh, there is what's been referred to in some news resources as a pandemic of femicide. So the term femicide um, was seemingly first used in 1801 in a book called A Satirical View of London at the Commencement of the 19th Century by somebody called John Corey, where it was used to refer to the killing of a woman. However, in 1976, it was reintroduced by a feminist pioneer called Diana Russell at the International Tribunal of Crimes Against Women in order to bring attention to the violence, uh, in order to bring attention to violence against women. Um, and femicide has uh, since kind of seen two definitions. The first from 1976 defined femicide as the murder of women by men motivated by hatred, contempt, pleasure or a sense of ownership of women while the second definition, updated for the United Nations Symposium on Femicide in 2012 and defined once more by Diana Russell, noted that femicide is the killing of one or more females by one or more males because they are female. In South Africa, the number of women killed is staggering and the country is included in the top 25 countries in the world for the highest rates of women killed along with other countries like El Salvador, which ranks number one. But according to the website Africa Check, in 2020 and 2021, a total of 2,655 women were murdered in South Africa, with an additional 898 women killed in the last quarter of 2021. Now, to put those numbers into context, and, you know, this is not to say, this is not like a, you know, who's got it worse, but it is just to kind of, you know, 
um, draw some comparisons. A BBC article uh, from this year noted that the latest figures from the Office for National Statistics indicated that between April 2020 and March 2021, so pretty much the same time frame as the figures taken from South Africa, 177 women were murdered in England and Wales compared to 416 men. 177 women in the UK compared to 2,655 women in South Africa. Hmm. However, whilst the UK numbers might not be as high as those in South Africa, the UK is still facing its own femicide issue. The same article notes that of the 177 women killed, 109 were killed by a man and 10 by a woman. And in 58 cases, there was no known subject, uh, no known suspect. This means <clears throat> that uh, where a, subject, a suspect was known, 92% of women were killed by men in the year ending March 2021. So alongside this, there's also what's called the UK Femicide Census, uh, which analyzes the murders of women um, in the United Kingdom. Some of the findings of the 2020 census note that 110 women were killed uh, by men in the year 2020. Um, 111 men were implicated in those murders, but at the time of publication, only 79 had been found responsible for killing of a woman. Uh, for sorry, for killing a woman. Um, so that means roughly a third of perpetrators had not been held accountable. Further stats highlight that 50% uh, of women were killed by a former or current partner. 13% were killed by their son, um, and only eight, only 8% were killed by a stranger. 77% uh, of killings took place in the home and um, in 48% of cases where a known history, sorry, and in 48 cases, uh, there was a known history of violence and abuse by the perpetrator against the victim. And 53% of perpetrators were known to have um, a previous history of violence against women. So <clears throat> I guess what is the point I'm trying to make with all these horrific stats? Um, I guess it's that when we talk about a war perpetrated uh, perpetrated against a gender, um, it seems that there's more evidence, so like more tangible evidence that can be like, you know, pointed to, seen or noted of who the aggressors might be when it comes to violence perpetrated against women. However, you know, there doesn't seem to be um, either A, the same level of violence perpetrated against males and men based on their sex or gender, um, nor does there seem to be an obvious perpetrator. Like I said, I'm not trying to say who has it worse or anything, but I guess what I am trying to highlight is how this narrative um, of war on men feels vague um, and I guess almost faceless. But um, the author of the original post that we're kind of talking about does go on to say this. Because no one is easier to control than a passive, docile, domesticated doormat that is unsure of himself and feeling a sense of shame for being a man. Despite what is unconsciously getting fed, we need strong men. And despite the popular narrative from the woke numpties, there is a shit ton of people that love seeing men step into their healthy masculine power. If these cunts in positions of power thought every single bloke was, every single bloke was just going to roll over and become a passive passenger, they were wrong. Now see... <laughs> This is interesting, because um, while the use of cunts might be generic, um, I can't help think that this per particular individual is talking about women and feminism. I might be wrong. But even if I am wrong, there is also the allusion to um, them 
being in positions of power? Like who? Who are these people and why can't they be named? Is that because is that because there are no real people in positions in positions of power trying to make men docile, passive, and domesticated, um, and by keeping it vague, it helps make it seem like there's a massive conspiracy, you know, like there's dark forces at play, um, or is it like these woke numpties that are doing it? And also, what is it that these cunts and woke numpties are asking? Like, the last time I checked, no one was asking men to be weak or docile. Um, you know, I think you'll find that men are being asked to, like, not be stoic or emotionless and to, you know, get more in touch with a wider range of emotions and increase their emotional intelligence. Um, this doesn't necessarily um, equate to weakness. Also, uh, you know, we as men were being asked to be less reliant on physical violence or even the threat or capability of violence, as Jordan Peterson likes to talk about, um, when dealing with conflict uh, and to deal with conflict in a, in a way that's a bit more healthy. Um, and as I said earlier, this does not seem to relate um, to any of the real world issues facing men, like unemployment, high rates of suicide, things like that. This seems to be a concern, um, mostly in my view, about the reevaluation of masculinity and what it means to be a man in today's society. Because again, the idea that there is something wrong with being weak uh, and docile highlights that there is uh, a particular way of being a man. Um, even though the author of this Instagram post and caption talks about men stepping into healthy masculinity, there still feels like there's this delineation uh, that one type of way of being a man is better. And like, I always struggle with the word weak when it comes to men. Like, what do, what do men, uh, like the man who made this post, mean when they denigrate weak men? Are they talking about physicality and physical strength or are they talking about, you know, uh, mental fortitude uh, or resiliency in the face of adversity or how to stand your ground and uh, be assertive? Um, because weak can mean so many things. Um, but then at the same time, there is sometimes this narrative that seems to imply that weak men are the ones who are dangerous. And I'm always like, how? Like how and why and in what way? Um, are they weak? Because uh, even when talking about healthy masculinity, there seems to be this element of strength needed to be a man. Um, and with strength, you know, there seems to be this implication of power. And so are those who um, denigrate weak men saying that weak men will go to dangerous lengths to obtain this power? Um, and I suppose part of me is like, well, probably, yeah, because if you make it that uh, you can't be seen as a man, even a healthy man, by this particular individual's construction of masculinity, without any kind of power, then you create power as something to be coveted. Um, and that might lead, you know, supposedly weak men to go about trying to, to obtain this power in um, potentially harmful ways. I've got no idea if any of this makes sense, but I suppose what I'm trying to highlight is that all of this, you know, this war on men rhetoric appears to be a pushback against the idea that the current rule of thumb of masculinity might no longer be up to scratch. And there is something quite insidious about calling it a war, because if you're calling it a war and this, you know, I'll hold my hands up to the fact that this might be uh, me taking my interpretation of this a bit too like melodramatically far, but still, if you're going to call it a war, then you're likely looking to recruit soldiers into battle uh, to push back, which might sound, as I said, might sound a bit melodramatic, but when coupled, but if you, you know, if you take what I've just said and coupled it with the, another segment of uh, the caption under the Instagram post in question, it doesn't feel all that far off. Um, so the, the caption reads, here's the thing. 
If men wake up to what is unfolding and step into their power, they're a lot less likely to roll over it and just take it from those in positions of power. They become a threat to the regime. So gents rise. Which I'm not going to lie, sounds just a teeny bit propaganda-esque. I mean, it sounds a little bit like mobilization, like a call to action, which is somewhat concerning because more and more current research is starting to highlight that actually younger men um, are buying into this narrative and this rhetoric. Um, and one might even call, you know, one might even use the term radicalized in this way or even groomed into believing that there's this, like this unknown force out there trying to diminish men. Um, in an article, at, uh, a 2021 article discussing this, uh, which also, by the way, features commentary by Laura Bates, Research by somebody called Dr. Joshua Roos notes that one in three men under the age of 35 believe that women's rights have gone too far. Gone too far. Um, and I guess while I'm not saying that the specific post in question that I've just gone through today um, in and of itself is adding to this kind of belief um, and to this belief that there is a war on men, but I would certainly venture that it's part of, um, it's, you know, it's probably adding to it and, you know, this is of concern to me. I don't know how many people it is of concern to generally around the world, but it's kind of something that I've just noticed. And, you know, um, obviously Laura Bates noticed it enough to write an entire book about it. Obviously, there's some research being done about it. Um, you know, so I think it's fair to say that people are maybe worrying. Um, and I guess my main thing is the fact that um, all this information is being disseminated online on popular social media platforms like Instagram um, and is no longer quarantined to the more sort of clandestine, murkier, maybe lesser known message boards of the internet is what gives me pause, is what makes me sort of think about the fact that this sort of needs to be spoken about, needs to be digested, needs to be unpacked and unpicked. Okay, um, that's the end of the episode. Um, yeah um i guess i've referenced quite a lot of things within this podcast episode if you want to go and look at any of the articles um and stuff that i've, I've referenced um you can go look in the show notes this podcast has been written out in a bit of a transcript um and there are hyperlinks within the text that you can go in and read the particular articles um if they interest you um thanks for listening I know that this might not necessarily have been the most enjoyable podcast to listen to, but if you found it beneficial and you think it's informative and you think that somebody else might learn a thing or two, please do share it. Um, please tell your friends. Um, also, please rate the podcast. Um, leave a comment. You know, it all helps me understand how all of this stuff that I do lands um, with the audience. Um, if you have anything to, you want to add or say in relation to what you've heard, please do come say hi. Um, on my Instagram page and um, we can have a chat um, but mostly uh, mostly I hope you have a good day no pressure to have one but I just hope you do and I will talk to you soon <laughs>